Okay, so we're going to pick up in that story. Jesus says, I'm the light. They say, prove it. Jesus says he calls himself as a witness. He calls his father as a witness. And, and they're kind of like, well, anybody can just say they are. How do we know? And Jesus says, well, you'll know I am he when the Son of Man is lifted up. And, and they don't know what he's talking about yet, and he's talking about his crucifixion. So they will actually participate, because these are the ones that, spoiler alert, will eventually arrest him and try him and, and uh, convict him of leading the people astray, and then he will be crucified. And they're actually fulfilling his prediction that he will be lifted up. And it's through the lifting up of the Son of Man that all people will come to see him as the Savior. And so Jesus predicts that. He says, you'll know when you see me lifted up. They don't know what he's talking about. That's right there at the end of verse 28, 29. And then let's pick it up and read it together, starting in verse 30. And as he was saying these things, as Jesus was saying these things, many believed in him. But then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, so it seems like he's talking about the same group, he says to them, if, if you're taking notes, circle if, if you continue in my word, and, and the word continue there is actually the same Greek word as remain, which we'll see twice more in this passage, so I just want to point that out. And the English translators, I don't know why they changed it to continue, Clearly, he's got a theme, remain, remain, remain. So if you remain in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Pretty famous line. Have you heard that before? And the truth will set you free. Then these, these, these Jewish people, they responded. They said, hey, we are the descendants of Abraham, they answered him. And we have never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say that we will become free? How can we be free if we've never been enslaved? Jesus responded, Truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. A slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. So, if the Son, and that's intentional, you see the capital S there for Son, and a lowercase s in the, in the sentence before. If the Son sets you free, you really will be free. You are free indeed, your translation might say. I know that you are descendants of Abraham, but you are trying to kill me because my word has no place among you. You see, are, you, are you seeing the theme here? My word has no place among you. My word can't remain among you. It finds no place to rest its head. You reject it. It can't remain in you. So you're trying to kill me. Verse 38. I speak what I have seen in the presence of the Father. So then, you do what you have heard from your father. What do, what do they mean? What is it? You know, you got to picture them. What is he talking about? Your father. Don't worry, it gets even hairier as we go. Remember, Jesus has, we talked about this last week, has changed his tone a bit. 
much more confrontational. Before it was, you know, sort of nice Jesus revealing who he was, doing miracles, showing himself to be the Messiah, the one sent from God. And now he's, he's come and he's created the controversy. It's building, building, building. So he says, you do what you've heard from your father. We don't know yet where he's going with this. We'll find out in a second. They say, our father is Abraham. Now Abraham was the father of the Jewish people, of Israel. If you study in Genesis, you'll see that God calls Abram, and then eventually changes his name to Abraham, calls him out of uh, where he was from, um, somewhere in uh, further east, and calls him west towards what is now uh, Israel, and near Jerusalem, and Abraham comes and leaves his father's household, just as God has said, and travels with a caravan of people, and starts a new family, because God told him to. And so this family then becomes what is known as the people of Israel. And so they say, Abraham's our father. Jesus replies, If you were Abraham's children, you would do what Abraham did. But now you are trying to kill me, a man who, was to- who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You're doing what your father does. So he keeps coming. Who's your dad? Who's your father? Okay, then they get mean. And you might not, you might not see this, you might not know this. They say, we weren't born of sexual immorality, they said. We have one father, God. Now probably what's going on here is they had heard the rumors. You know what the rumors are? That Jesus actually, that Mary was a virgin when she got pregnant. That, that story was probably already going around about Jesus. That he actually had this supernatural origin. And they're, they're making fun of him. Well, we weren't born of sexual immorality like you are. We know the story that's told about you is to cover up that your mom had sex outside of marriage and you were born outside of marriage and Joseph isn't even your father. So they're making fun of him. They say, we weren't born like that. We have one father, God. So Jesus doesn't like that. Nobody likes it when, no son likes it when their mother is drugged through the mud. So Jesus says to them, verse 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me because I came from God and I am here. Another I am statement. Just slides it in. Talked about that last week. For I didn't come on my own, but he sent me. Why don't you understand what I say? Because you cannot listen to my word. You 
Now get now now he comes out with it. You are of your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Who among you can convict me of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? The one who is from God listens to God's words. This is why you don't listen, because you are not from God. It's getting intense. So the uh, Jewish authorities do what anybody does when they're called out like this. They turn to some pretty, even more insulting tactics to try to knock Jesus off his block. What do they say to him? Look at verse 48. The Jews responded to Jesus, Aren't you right, or aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and that you have a demon? Right? Character assassination. I was like, one thing to call him, say his birth was illegitimate and he was born out of sexual immorality. It's another thing to call him a Samaritan. That was the most insulting thing that you could say to a Jewish person. Now, this of course doesn't bother Jesus. Jesus has already come. He he knows he's come not just to save the Jewish people, but all peoples, including the Samaritans. And we've already had this beautiful picture or, or this story that John has reminded us of when Jesus comes to the woman at the well, a Samaritan woman, and brings her the living water of life. But they are trying to get him angry. They're trying to expose him, and they say, you're crazy. That, that, calling, saying somebody has a demon is kind of like calling somebody insane today. Completely out of your mind. Look what Jesus says. I do not have a demon, Jesus answered. On the contrary, I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. And therefore you dishonor my Father, because he sent me. I do not seek my own glory, Jesus says. There is one who seeks it, that's, he's going to say it's the Father, and, and he judges too. Truly I tell you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Whoa, okay. What's that mean? And you could see and you understand the Jews, now he's saying nobody's going to see death if they keep this guy's words. So the Jews said, verse 52, now we know that you have a demon. Now we know that you're insane. Abraham died and so did the prophets. You say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets? They died too. Who do you claim to be? Now, Jesus has been making it clear for a while now who he's claiming to be. He'll make it very clear now. But he first says this. He says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. My Father, about whom you say he is our God, he is the one who glorifies me. You do not know him, but I know him. If I were to say I don't know him, then I would be a liar like you. But... I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. 
And the Jews replied, You aren't 50 years old yet, and you've seen Abraham? Again, who do you think you are? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly. And whenever Jesus says truly, truly, he's about to say something important. Truly, truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. And what do they do? They know what he's saying. I am was the personal name that God gave to Moses in the burning bush. When Moses asked, what should I call you when the people ask me, who sent you to set us free? And God says, tell them I am that I am, Yahweh. And, and Jesus is clearly saying, before Abraham was even born, I am. I am God, he's saying. So they picked up stones to throw at him, to kill him, to execute him for leading the people astray and speaking blasphemy about God, which was punishable by death in the Jewish law. But Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple. So we got a lot going on here. We got a lot of insulting. We've got a lot of truth and lie and, and the devil and where are you from and who's your father and all, all the stuff. I mean, this is a pretty gritty conversation. So I want to try to pull out a few what I think are really important takeaways from this dialogue. Um, it's important to say that they do eventually kill Jesus. Just remember that. So Jesus knew the motives of their heart. He truly knew what they were after. And even though uh, he's hidden because his time had not yet come and he goes out of the temple, it's not because he's hiding from the death that he knows is awaiting him because this is, Jesus has made it clear, I've come to die as a sacrifice for my people. But this exchange is helping us see the heart behind the action and hopefully it helps us discern our heart behind our actions. Okay, so the first thing I want to point out is right there at the beginning in verse 30. It says, many believed. So you're thinking, oh, this is good. And other times in John, many have believed. And, and so we're, we're thinking, okay, many, many heard what he said about being the light and I am he and, and, and they accepted his testimony. But then very quickly... Jesus senses something in those people who had believed that perhaps their belief wasn't full or wasn't true. Or, or, uh, and they didn't even know it. They didn't know what believing means. And so Jesus consents that they're only believing in him in some way. And he says to them, if you continue or remain in my word, then you, will, then you are really my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And so what Jesus is discerning and he's trying to help them see is that there's a kind of belief that is only true and right and real if it remains, or, or the, word, the Greek word here is also translated elsewhere, abide. You heard this word? Abide. And so... What does it mean to abide in Jesus' word? Because he says, you abide in my word. Uh, yes, there's an element of this is that you follow his teachings, but that is not the fullness. And, and Jesus could have used other words to say, obey my teachings. 
But to remain in his word is even, way more than that. It's to, Jesus, remember, John has said, is the word. That the word has become flesh in John 1.1. 1, 1. And, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so Jesus not only has teachings, those are his words that are to be obeyed. That's part of remaining. But to remain in his presence. And so this idea of presence is really important, isn't it, through this whole dialogue. That Jesus is trying to explain that there's something way more than just following the law or the rules or the religious practices. There's way more to being free in God than just being a good rule follower. Again, why is that? Because as, as I said at the beginning, Christianity and the message of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, which is the gospel, is that there is a new way, and it's the only way for which you can connect and remain with God forever and experience life to the full, and that's through grace. Grace that comes by faith, the right kind of believing in Jesus. And the right kind of believing in Jesus is remaining near him, in his presence, with him, wherever he may go. Not just by following a bunch of Christian rules even. This is so important. And, and many of us, you know, can, can spend a lot of time in church. And we can do all the things that we know we're supposed to do. But yet we don't experience freedom because we don't know the truth. And Jesus says of himself, I am the truth. And so knowing truth is way more about knowing the person of Jesus than it is just knowing things about Jesus or rules or teachings that he gave. Those things will help you know him, but that's not knowing him. I could um, tell you all sorts of things about my wife, Allie. I could tell you about all her accolades. I could tell you even about struggles she's had in her life. And you could know her in some way. I could say, if you do these things, Allie will really like you. <laughs> she will want to hang out with you. But you won't know her just by me telling you about her. You could take a, a, a I could teach a, you know, five-year class on who is Allie Evanger? And you wouldn't know her. You'd know her by remaining and staying in her presence for some period of time. It's the same with God. It's the same with Jesus. When you know the truth, Jesus, the truth, Jesus, will set you free. Remaining in Jesus, remaining in his word, in his presence, in his person, on his way will lead to a life of freedom. Well, how can that be? That seems so restrictive. If I've got to remain where he's going, then I always have to walk where he wants to walk. Yeah. And the question is, is that more freedom than the other way, which is the way that the world has taught us, that you go your own way, you pick your own way, you pick your own truth, you're in charge of your own life. What's true? What's free? And what's pretending to be free? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. So if we remain in him, we are his true disciples, and we will be set free. This is such a profound... I mean, I could just preach a whole sermon on just that. I probably should have. But um, 
This is such an amazing and important declaration by Jesus. Hopefully it comes to life as we look at the other things that he has to say. So what's the next thing that he says that we need to try to understand? Well, he starts to talk about slavery. Okay? Now what's interesting, did you hear that, that the Israelites are, or the Jewish leaders are like, how can you say we need to be set free? We've never been enslaved. And it's just like, who are you, who are you joking here? You're enslaved in Egypt. You're enslaved by the Babylonians. You're enslaved by the, Ass- the Assyrians. You're enslaved, <laughs> you know, like... Uh, the Romans are currently enslaving you and you pay taxes to them. Like, what is he talking about? Well, they're hearing it like, we've never been enslaved to the point of having to worship other gods. So they're saying in that sense we've been free, so we don't need to be free. So they get that Jesus is talking about some other kind of slavery than just um, indentured servitude or something like that. So, I don't think they're just sort of ignorant of their history. I think they're saying, we're not, I think you're talking about something else, Jesus, and we're, we're free. We can worship God just as we like. And Jesus says, well, not so fast. Not so fast. He says this, verse 34. Truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. And then he goes on to tell this interesting analogy. He says, a slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. So if the son sets you free, you really will be free. So what's Jesus getting at here? I think this is an important theological truth that that we see again and again in Scripture. So let me go, and I want to read together Romans 6, 5 through 11. talks about the same idea of sin being like an oppressor, that we become a slave to sin. This is the Apostle Paul writing after the life, teaching, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, and he is picking up on the teaching of Jesus saying this. If For if we have been united with him, that's in Jesus Christ, in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be united with him in the likeness of his resurrection. So what he's saying is when you remain in Christ, you die with Christ and your sin dies with Christ on the cross and you are raised up to a new life with Christ in his resurrection. Like there's some, this, this amazing Union that happens until you, your, your life of sin and death experiences a death on the cross and you experience a resurrection to new life. He'll go on to say, Therefore, for we know that our old self was crucified with Jesus so that the body, that's talking about our body, ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Hear that language? That Paul's using. Since a person who has died is freed from sin, so if you die, if you if you have debts or uh, if you know you've got a bounty out for your uh, crimes and you die, they just rip those things up. It's gone. So that's what Paul's talking about. If you've died with Christ, we believe that you will also live with Him, because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. 
but the life he lives, he lives to God. So, you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So there's this spiritual reality that happens that when we sin, and we've all sinned, each and every one of us have sinned and fallen short of that perfect standard that God has given to us. He's placed it in our heart, and so we feel like we've sinned. We know we have somehow missed the mark. We all know it. You don't have to grow up in the church or grow up in any religious system to know you're somehow missing the mark set because he's written it on your heart. And so we know that we've missed that mark. We've all sinned. And without Christ, without his death and resurrection, we are, Paul says, and Jesus is saying, we're enslaved to that sin. We're like stuck in it. We actually can't pull ourselves out just by effort. Like sometimes actually the more we fight it, the more it takes hold of us. And so that's what Jesus is talking about. That's what Paul is talking about. He's saying, all have sinned, and so all are a slave of sin. We don't actually own sin. Sin owns us. Now, these are big, big statements. Particularly for a group of people, the people Jesus is talking to, that are the most religious. I mean, the, the fact that they're even talking to Jesus is because when any new rabbi comes into town, they want to understand religious truth. They want to understand God's message if he's giving a message through a new teacher. They're the ones that are judging the people of Israel. They're the ones that are running the festivals. And they're the ones that are, they're really religious people. And to call them slaves of sin would be a particular offense to them. But Jesus says it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how serious you are about your religion. It doesn't matter how serious you are as a Christian. Without the death and resurrection of Jesus, you are stuck in your sin. You're a slave to it. It owns you. You don't own it. You might think you have control over it, but how's that going for you? Can you really master it, or does it master you? You just got to be honest. I was a slave to sin. But when I remained in and abided in Christ, when I unite myself to Him and remain in Him, my sin dies with Him on the cross. And I no longer, it's not that I no longer sin, it's that I no longer am a slave to sin. That's the great promise of the gospel. And it's the truth that will set you free. But you have to admit, first and foremost, who you are. Are you a slave or are you a son? And Jesus will say there's only one way to become a son of the Most High God, and that's by remaining in me. Not me, but Jesus. <laughs> remaining in Jesus for your whole life. Uniting your life to his life. That is the way to become a spiritual child of God and no longer a slave. So let's dig into that. Slave or a son? So they're like, okay, I don't believe that, you know. They're not, they're not thinking that. And so Jesus uses this analogy. He's basically saying, hey, there's lots of people. And th this is probably, it's hard for us to understand because our, our household tends to be kind of a very small, you know, unit, right? Like, I've got two boys, so we've got a house of four, Okay, 
but back then, the household was much bigger. I mean, everyone sort of worked for a, a, you know, a wealthy household. And so when Jesus is thinking here, he's just thinking about uh, the household unit, which would have included extended relatives, there would have been servants, and the word slave here is, is not slavery in the way we came to know it in America. It's more of indentured servitude. So you have some debt to this wealthy uh, you know, landowner uh, or patron, and you can't pay that debt. And so to pay it off, you become a bond servant. So that's the word here for slave. So it's people who have become bond servants under someone who has more power and control than them. Now, I'm not saying that these forms of slavery were good forms. It's just maybe slightly different than how we think of slavery and the history of slavery in this country. And so he says, listen, when you think of a household, the household is full of all kinds of people. He's saying there are some people who are just temporary residents. Those are the bond servants or the slaves. Those are the workers in the household. Yes, they're part of the household. And he's I think he's using an analogy of even God's household. So he's thinking about the people of Israel. He's saying, listen, amongst the household of God that is the people of Israel, yeah, you're Abraham's descendants, but I'm just saying in the household there are some people who are temporary residents and some people who are forever residents. Bondservant slaves, they're temporary residents. They are under a, a different yoke. Then there are sons and daughters. They will remain in the household forever. So he's painting this picture for them. And these people would have thought, well, of course we are. And you hear them keep saying, well, we, no, God's our father. Abraham's our father. We're, we're sons and daughters. And Jesus keeps saying, no, 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 no. I don't think you see it clearly. You've put yourself in the wrong category. Yes, your descendants biological descendants of Abraham, but you are not spiritual descendants of Abraham. You are not sons and daughters of God in the way you think you are. You've been deceived, whether it's self-deception or the deception of your father, the devil. He's in the business of deceiving people, if you know the story. And he's trying to help them see that they aren't who they think they are. Now, they don't think Jesus is who Jesus thinks he is, and Jesus says, I don't think you are who you think you are. So Jesus then has to make his case. He's now said they're temporary residents, not forever residents of God's household, and he wants to help them see why that is. They say, well, we're, we're, we're just like Abraham, and Jesus says, you're nothing like Abraham. If you go to the end of the narrative, he says, Abraham saw my day. We don't know exactly what that means if God gave Abraham a vision of the coming of the Messiah or if God just gave Abraham the hope that God would come and rescue his people. Whatever the Abraham saw, Jesus is clearly saying, Abraham's on Team Jesus. But he's got to use some specific examples to help them see, because he's, I want you to hear this, he's not just trying, they're trying to be mean to him. They're trying to use tactics to shut him down. They're calling him that he was a child of sexual immorality. They're saying he's a Samaritan. They're saying he has a demon, that he's insane, that he's lost his mind. And he's trying to lovingly wake them up. 
Because he again and again says, again, guys, this is not heredity to get into the forever resident of God's household. It's by faith alone. It's by residing in me, remaining in me, abiding in me, trusting in me. That's how you get in, and it's open to everybody. And so he's lovingly helping them see they're not like Abraham in the way they think they are. So, they, so Jesus says, you don't do what Abraham did. You're trying to kill me. Abraham didn't do this. I'm just a guy who came from God with a message, and you are trying to kill me. Did Abraham do that? See, he's, he's appealing to their collective memories of who Abraham is and trying to help them see that they're, they're believing a lie about themselves. So the question is, wh- what is Jesus referring to when he says, Abraham didn't do that? I think there could be uh, two options here. Or both might be true. I kind of lean towards the both, but I'll explain them to you. He, they could, Jesus could just be referring to Abraham's general works, meaning the way he lived a life of faith. Uh, everybody calls Abraham the father of faith, that Abraham believed and trusted in God. And so, so Jesus might just be talking about Abraham always trusted God when God spoke. Remember I talked about how Abraham was just minding his own business, living his life, and then God revealed himself to Abraham and said, go, I want you to leave your father's house to the land that I'll show you and go, and I'm going to make you into a great nation and you'll bless all other nations through your offspring. And we see that, of course, fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham that becomes a blessing to all nations, not just the nation of Israel. So they could be referring to this general sense. Now, Abraham trusted God when God said, I want you to go sacrifice Isaac, this long-awaited son, and I want you to sacrifice him to me. And Abraham goes through the whole setup, and he gets it all ready, and he's trusting in God to the very last minute, and then God shows up and sees, Abraham, I see that you trust me. And he gives Abraham a ram to sacrifice in his son's place. Again, another picture of Jesus' sacrifice that God will send to spare us. But Abraham just lived this life of faith. Not perfection, but a life of faith. And so perhaps there's just this general sense in the things that Abraham did, the way he lived. Um, I don't see you guys living like that. Now I had the thought this week, and, and I could not confirm it in reading any of the scholars, so I, I just want to say it's a, it's a hypothetical. We don't know exactly when Jesus said these words what he had in mind. But there is a very specific story in the Old Testament in the life of Abraham that does seem to have some parallels to the Jesus story. Okay, So let me explain it to you. And you can go back and read about this in chapter 18 of the book of Genesis, which is the first book in your Bible. So Abraham is in uh, living in tents in the desert, and, and he hasn't uh, been able to conceive a child and him and his wife, Sarah, are, Sarah are very old, very old, way past childbearing years. And, and, and then three messengers or visitors come. It's a very strange story, and you're not quite sure who these visitors are. I mean, they're out in the middle of nowhere, and these visitors come. And uh, you come to find out as you go through the narrative that these are clearly heavenly 
messengers, visitors, uh, angels at a minimum that have somehow come in, 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 in the form in which Abraham can interact with them and feed them and, and Abraham comes out to them as he sees them coming and he bows down. He humbles himself. He prostrates himself before. He can tell these are very important messengers from God. And he listens to the message that they bring. And the message that they bring is that you will have a son. And Abraham can't believe it. He's almost giddy with laughter. And how can this be? I'm over 100 years old. And, uh, but he trusts these visitors. Now a strange thing happens. So here we have an example of God sending messengers with a message. A message of good news. A message of life. And Abraham trusts and believes. Okay? Okay? Jesus is coming with a message of good news, a message of life, saying he's sent by God and he has a message for the people and the the message is not one of judgment or condemnation, but one of life, forgiveness, and eternity. Abraham humbles himself, feeds these people, clearly sees that they are from God and trusts. The religious elites do the opposite. What do they do? They try to kill the messenger. They don't like the message. They say, I like the way things are going. I don't want you to mess up what we've got. So there's very different reactions. So, you know, maybe Jesus has this in mind, or maybe he's thinking they'll have this in mind. Now, what's extra interesting about that story, if you're a student of Scripture, is that when Abraham starts to talk, it seems like there's almost two types of messenger because one of the messengers uh, when you read the the text in, in chapter 18 Abraham starts referring to him as Lord not just Lord as in you know sir but Lord as in God and it's like the the same way Abraham has talked to God in the past the same nouns are used like Abraham's talking to God. So some scholars, many scholars in fact, uh, hypothesize that this is actually what's called a Christophany in the Old Testament. There's a few times in the Old Testament where it seems like, just like in the burning bush, that God has manifested in physical form. And anytime God manifests in physical form, that's God the Son taking on the form to, to interact with his world. That perhaps this here, that's why I call it a Christophany, that Christ actually appeared in to the, the Old Testament saints in physical form and interacted with them. So if that is what's happening in this Genesis story, which many, many scholars see that's what's going on, we actually have a much, you see the parallel becomes much more obvious. Okay, Jesus said, I've, I did come to Abraham with a message and a message of hope and life. And Abraham welcomed me, and he honored me. I'm coming to you guys, just like I came to Abraham, and you are dishonoring me. You're trying to kill me, in fact. You are not Abraham's offspring. That could be what he's saying. Now, he's got no problem calling himself God. He does that at the end. It's what makes them want to stone him to death. But he may be referring to this story. It's really interesting, isn't it? No, I've actually 
I can tell you with certainty this is not how Abraham reacted when I came to him. <laughs> you see it? The irony of it. Well, we're Abraham's kids. We're just like Abraham. Just like, you're nothing like Abraham. I sat. Abraham made me a meal. I sat at a table with him. He honored me, and you dishonored me. So it's fascinating. Now, regardless of what Jesus is trying to get them to see, uh, the conclusion is clear, right? That Jesus does not believe that they are the spiritual offspring of Abraham. They are not children of faith. They are children of works and law and earning your way into the favor of God, where Abraham was one who trusted God by faith and received the favor that God put upon him. And so this should remind us of another conversation that we read about in John chapter 3 when we're talking about who's your father, right? Who's your family? What household are you in? When Jesus tells Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is again like, what are you talking about? Because Jesus says, you must be born again. Remember talking about this? You must be born again. Nicodemus, who is also a Pharisee, asked Jesus, how can someone enter the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, you must be born again. It's like, Nicodemus says, how can I go back into my mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus says, no, 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 you don't understand it. You're, you're thinking way too literal about this. He's saying, you must become adopted by and born into a new family. Your current family, just by being a, a, a Jew, by... Heredity does not get you into the forever family of God. You must be born again. You must have a new father. God must become your father, just like Abraham had to leave his father's house and let God be his father in the desert. That's true of us as well. There is nothing, no family that you can be born in, no good works that you can do that can make you into the, or can, can, can let you inherit the forever family of God. You can only be adopted into the forever family of God by being born again into a, with a new father. And Jesus shows us the way to do that. Remain in me, and I will show you the way to be born into this new forever family. Okay. And if you do... You are not going to be like those temporary residents who are receiving, because see, God's kingdom is good. He gives grace to the sons and the slaves right now. We're all living in his common grace. We're all receiving good things from the Father. But he's saying there will come a day where we'll send away those who are not forever sons and daughters of mine. That's the message that Jesus is bringing. And he's saying, but I can show you the way. Remain in me, abide in my word, and I will show you the way to become sons and daughters of God like I am the son. It's beautiful. Okay, so if Jesus is helping them try to see whether they are like Abraham and truly sons and daughters of the Most High God, a forever resident or a temporary resident, I think he wants to help us try to see if we're a forever resident or a temporary resident. Are we a slave or a son in this analogy? 
Now, to help us answer that question, we have to get really specific like Jesus does about everyone has a father. And Jesus brings up this other interesting thing. He says, no, your father is the devil. Well, why'd you have to go there, Jesus? Well, in the Gospel of John, John likes to make things very black and white, so he pulls out the stories that are very black and white. And so he's trying to help us see that there are multiple ways in which we can be deceived. And one of them is by living into the affirming words of our father, the devil. Now, who is the devil? You know, I don't, I don't want to assume everybody knows when we say the devil. It's not, the devil is not what you're going to see on Halloween. It's not the, the, horn, the red, the horns, this and that. These are caricatures in part to, I think, deceive us that, ah, this is just a funny thing that we like to get scared about. If you study the Bible, what you realize is the devil is actually a great angel, a great messenger that God has created. Even before he created the foundation of earth, he created, uh, we don't know how many, a numerous number of these spiritual beings called angels. Now some of those angels, led by the devil, rebelled against God and didn't like the things God said. They liked what they thought, and they said better. And the Bible tells us that they rebelled against God. Now, the, the, the level of detail we have uh, sort of ends there. But it's important to remember that this devil is not the caricature we have in our head, but he is an angel masquerading as an angel of light. And he comes into the world. First we see him in Genesis chapter 3, deceiving Adam and Eve, the first humans, and getting them to doubt whether God is a good father. And actually saying he's not a good father. And you can't trust him. And he's just out for himself and he's not out for you and it's better if you just go your own way. And the devil continues to work in the same ways to lie about what is good what is evil, what is right, what is wrong, if God is good or if God is selfish. And so the people Jesus is talking to, they understand who this biblical character is. They understand, I think, that the devil is real in the world to some degree. We don't know exactly how they understood it when Jesus said this to them, but they clearly are offended, <laughs> okay? Uh, and they'll turn and call it, say that Jesus has a demon. Uh, and a demon is just, again, another fallen spiritual being created by God for God's glory, but that has rebelled against that task to seek their own glory and to fight against the glory of God. And so they're saying, no, Jesus, you are of the devil. And you have a demon. So who's telling the truth? So... When we get into that conversation, it then brings, I think, to life even more fully this analogy of the household and who remains in the household and who doesn't remain in the household, the temporary resident versus the permanent resident. It's part of the why I love this picture puzzle that Jesus builds for us here. I think there's a few additional implications of it that I'll add to what I just said. 
The first thing I love about it, by Jesus bringing the devil into the picture here, is I think we can imply from this that Jesus is saying, even the devil is a slave of God. And he only has access to the Father's house, which is creation, at the allowance of the Father, at the allowance of God. Which means that his access can be revoked at any moment as God chooses. And God will revoke his access at some point. Now, a million questions pop up in your head. Why is he even allowed access? Well, you're going to have to ask God that question. But I love the fact that all created beings living in God's creation are either sons and daughters of God, forever residents, or temporary residents, including the devil himself and all those who fall or fell with him in the great rebellion. That's a great truth and, and something to remember. He won't always be able to do what he does, which is lie, deceive, distort, and lead astray. And it's okay at that point to say amen. Amen. Okay. Now the other thing I love about this story is that because God is not a God of dishonor, but a God of honor, as I said, he gives temporary access to all people. Why would he do that? Why would he allow those who don't want anything to do with him or want to rule or make decisions on their own and don't want to listen to his word or abide in his herd or remain in his word? Why, do they let him, why, do they, why does God allow them to remain in his house? Well, the answer is because he wants to give them an opportunity to see that he's a good father. So the great truth of what Jesus is saying is he's saying any human being, Jew, Gentile, Samaritan, doesn't matter, can, any slave can become a son or a daughter by choosing to adopt God as father and turn from the father of lies, which is the devil and Satan. Simply by choosing to turn from one father to a new father allows anyone to abide and remain forever in God's household. And so he waits patiently. He allows both types of people to remain and experience the blessing of being in his common grace and his goodness so that some might turn and, and, and allow themselves to be adopted as sons and daughters. I don't want you to miss that. Jesus is opening the door to all people, not just the hereditary descendants of Abraham. And then look at verse 36. This is a beautiful truth. So, Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you really will, will be free. You really will be free. Now, this is another sort of layer to this story. Remember I told you to say, notice it says sons, lowercase, and then the son, uppercase. So one of the beautiful things is that when we come to realize that Jesus is the son, the son of God, means he owns it all, 
If he, if we're living in the common household of God and the common grace, if the Son says, you are free, your debt is cleaned, you're no longer a bondservant, you're now a son, you will be free indeed. You will be truly free because the Son has said so. And that's what Jesus is saying. I'm the Son. I have the authority to set people free. And when you're set free, you are forever changed into a new identity. The debt is gone. The debt is paid on the cross. You are completely free now to live as a son and daughter in the house of God. Because the son, the son has set you free. Man, this is a layered, layered response by Jesus. And so he is preaching to those who have ears, those who realize that they are far and distant from God, that they can become near to God and abide in God and remain in God because the Son is inviting them and he's saying, I will take your debt. I will pay it off so that you can be a forever resident, that you can be my brother or sister in the family. Super cool. <laughs> okay. So now I want to uh, finish with, with this. Okay. So look at verse 43. Jesus says, why don't you understand what I say? So, you know, he's, he's frustrated, but it's like a loving frustration. Why can't you understand what I say? And then he says, I know why you can't understand, because you cannot listen to my word, because you are of your father the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. And you, he was a murderer. So you want to kill me? He's a murderer. And he's probably referring here to Cain and Abel. Back in the story of Genesis, the first murder, where Cain's heart is filled with anger and envy towards his brother, who God sees as giving a good sacrifice, and Cain's sacrifice was selfish. And so Cain kills his brother Abel. Jesus is claiming the devil was a part of that. <laughs> the devil was deceiving even Cain back then, and so he's sort of the father of murder, and you want to murder me because you don't like that I'm saying God is with me and not with you. So he says he was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature. His own nature. And that's what I want, I, I want to focus in on, own nature. There's something, so sometimes you can hear me talk about truth and lie, and we think, oh, you know, one person's obviously knows that they're lying and lies. But that's not actually how lying and deception tend to work. Most people who tell lies believe what they're saying. It's coming out of their actual nature. So I think we can even think of that of the devil. The, actual, the devil actually believed the own lie he had created in his mind, that God was not actually good, that God was withholding from him and the other angels or withholding from Adam and Eve. Good things. Like he believed it. It was coming out of his nature because he is a liar. Not because he knows, but because he is so self deceived that his own nature can only speak that which is not true. And so if we are trying to discern for ourselves, are we a slave in the household of God or a son or daughter in the household of God? One of the things we have to get really honest about, about which nature do we hear the words that are spoken in the world? From which nature do we have? 
Now, the beautiful thing is when you're born again, God gives you a new nature. Remember, we read it in Romans. The old self is gone, and the new self, that's a new nature. And so we hear the words that are spoken in the world differently. So which of these words sounds most sweet or satisfying to you? Which of these words that I'm about to speak sound like freedom to you, right? So what is the sound of freedom? Remember we talked about, how do I know? This kind of seems free, this autonomous American dream that I can do whatever I want. Nobody can tell me what to do or how to live or what to do with my money. Or is it free to walk with Jesus, abide with him? He's the way, the truth, and the life, and I stay near him, then I will be free. Which is the sound of freedom? You've got to ask yourself to try to get at the heart of what nature are you living in or acting in? Have you been born again? So let me say, these are the kinds of things that you might hear the devil say. He'll say things like, did God really say? Or maybe you should be the one to decide what's right or wrong for yourself. Go read it. That's what the words he says in Genesis chapter 3. Always questioning what God has said. Now there's a freedom in that, right? But it's of a, kind of, a certain kind of nature. Jesus says things, we've been reading it over and over again in John, like this. He says, I only say what the Father commands me to say. I only do what the Father commands me to do. I have no authority on my own, but only the authority which the Father gives me. That's how he talks. So which one sounds like freedom to you? When you, st- when you study the different ways in which people talk about freedom, and one sort of you come alive to one way or another, it could give you an insight into which nature you're living into. Now, you may have been born again, but that old self, even though it has died, it kind of you know, twitches and stuff every once in a while, and so you might like the sound of that freedom. But what do you know to be true freedom? And how you answer that might reveal if you're motivated by the heart of a rebel or by the heart of a son? The heart of the rebel always wants to go figure out everything on their own. Do it their own way. The heart of the son trusts the father, knows that the father is good, and does that which the father has said, not because it's restrictive, but because it's freedom that leads to life. Now, I realize that some of you haven't had a good father. So it can be hard to think of trusting your father as freedom at all because that father was not a father of life or love or compassion. But I did have a good father. And there's so much freedom. It's actually enjoyable when you have a good father to trust what they say and to be free from the burden to figure out everything on your own, to have to learn everything through hard knocks, but to actually have a father who leads you in the way of life, in the way of love, in the way of compassion. It's actually a really good thing, and it's really freeing. It's, it's not oppressive when you actually have a good father. And God says, I want to be your good father. I am a good father. And Jesus says, the father is good. And I think I've come to know him as my heavenly father in a way that I do experience 
obedience to him, walking in his way, trusting him, not having to learn everything the other way as actual freedom, whereas this is just pretend freedom. It's incredibly oppressive to never know where to go, to have to make every decision on your own. It's an incredibly life-giving for God to lay out the path and then to be the light to walk with you. You say, but I can't try everything. How's it going for you? Do you feel free? Or do you feel more and more enslaved to every new thing you try and how it always lets you down and how you're always chasing the next thing? Is that freedom? Or is there freedom in knowing that there is someone who knows you best, who designed you and created you, and is leading you to life? What is freedom? That's one question. There is an enemy of God, and he is wanting to deceive you out of his own nature so that you walk the path that he walked, which is to run away from his good creator. He's a temporary resident. He's going to try to mess with as many people as he can possibly mess with because he's convinced he's got it right about God, that God is selfish and all out for himself and doesn't want good things. That's just not true. And when you experience the truth, you'll see. Talk to people who have experienced it. I had it wrong. And now I see God is a good father. He wants good things. and He doesn't leave me to figure it all out on my own. Okay. The final interaction here helps us inevitably, I think, come back to the idea of resurrection. Of Jesus' resurrection as the only final place to turn to figure out who's lying and who's telling the truth. Whose father is actually God? Is it Jesus or are the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders? Are they sons and daughters of God? So Jesus comes, verse 48. They call him a Samaritan and they say that he has a demon. Then verse 49. Jesus says, no, that's actually not true. I come to honor my father, but you dishonor me and therefore dishonor the father. My father is a father of honor, not dishonored. Verse 50, it says, I don't seek my own glory, but my father seeks my glory. He will judge. And that will become very important. Jesus could just say, no, all glory is in me. But instead he says, we'll see. We'll see. Because I don't need to glorify myself. If I am who I say I am, the Father will glorify me. If I'm not who I say I am, you don't have to worry about me. And you can glorify yourselves. That's what he's saying. It's so interesting that he answers that way. And then they call him a liar. Because Jesus says, you know, that those who trust me will never see death. Here again, they take it very literally. And Jesus is talking about they won't see spiritual death because they will also experience a resurrection that Jesus will be the first fruits of when he dies and then is risen again. And the Jewish leaders think that's even more crazy than they thought he was. Even Abraham died. Even the prophets died. Do you think you're greater than Abraham? Do you think you're greater than the prophets? And Jesus kind of says, yeah, I do. But we'll see, you know. Either the Father will glorify me or he won't. We'll have to wait and see. And... The wait and see, the answer to that, comes at the end of the Gospel of John. And at the end of Jesus' story, after he's been hung from the cross, lifted up, 
for the world to see, the sins of the world put on him, and then he's buried in the grave. And at that point, you could just imagine these people that Jesus spoke to on this day where he said, well, the Father will either glorify me or he won't, thinking that they'd won. They'd finally got to Jesus. He hadn't slipped away this time. They'd finally put an end to this outrageous lie that God took on flesh, was born of the Virgin Mary, that lived the perfect life, that Jesus was who he said he was. We've put an end to that. We've saved the people from the lie. He's buried in the grave and we'll never have to hear from him again. Oops-a-daisy. <laughs> on the third day, he rose. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, he says, You say that God is your God. I say that God is my Father. And on the third day, Jesus was raised to life again. Who raised him to life? His Father. The Father of life, the good Father, proved that Jesus was who he said he was, that he was the one in the truth, and they were of their father, the devil, living in the lie about who Jesus was. And the resurrection proves it. It vindicates everything that Jesus had been revealing to people, hoping that they'd see, but he realized that he had to be vindicated. God had to glorify him. He couldn't just glorify himself. And when he rose from the dead, God glorified him and proved to all his opponents that he was, in fact, the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to the Father except by remaining, abiding, and walking in the Word become flesh, the Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.